0: I have a kind of a mantra, a framework that I, as I look back at my career and all my successes and failures, like the the first step for any entrepreneur that's bootstrapping should just be do more, right? Like more hours, more emails, more tests, more, if you're, if you're trying to make money designing websites, all you need is more clients, right? Uh, You know, it's uh, it's pretty, it's relatively simple. You just do a lot more then eventually you refine you know you get a little success and you you have to refine and become more efficient so you get to do better and then you know long into your career you get to what's right you know and you
1: get to do, do right let's discover the cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem we are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them welcome to the lay of the land podcast where we are exploring what people are building in cleveland I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we are headed a little bit south to Akron to learn about this week's guests who is building what has now become one of North America's fastest growing companies in the last year. AC Evans is the co-founder and CEO of Drips, which is the first conversational texting company, forging an entirely new category of consumer engagement and leading the way for some of the biggest brands in the world to use automated, humanized conversations at scale. On a daily basis, Drips now engages in tens of millions of completely humanized conversations with zero client-side human resources or operators at play. Starting at the early age of 16, AC has been passionate about scaling the unscalable in all his business ventures, and Drips is no exception there, which we will dive much deeper to in our conversation very much enjoyed covering ac's vast experience in performance marketing and consumer conversion and retention and entrepreneurship all while building drips a company with genuine multi-billion dollar trajectory here so please enjoy my conversation with AC Evans so I was uh thinking about the the best place to start this conversation typically working chronologically. Um, but it came across this idea that that you are quite passionate about, this idea of scaling the unscalable. And I, I wanted to just kind of set the stage for the rest of the conversation by starting with what this idea means to you and, and where your, your passion for it kind of stems from originally. Sure. I, I think I may have heard
0: Gary Vaynerchuk or some other speaker some other entrepreneur say it before I did I don't I don't, I don't pretend I made it up but I think that the thesis behind it is things that are difficult to scale are often very valuable if you can scale them right if you can figure out a way to have cars drive themselves you have a Tesla right if you figure out a way to have a texting you know system hold human conversations you have a company called drips things that weren't scalable before if you can figure out a way to scale them then there there's always value there right i think i think that's you know kind of the the genesis of it was you know that's where all the the money is made or the efficiencies are had is when you can have a force multiplier where you're able to to scale the unscalable you generally can disrupt some prior different methodology if you can do that
1: right and because they are unscalable they have Less likely a chance to have been approached in the way that I think a lot of other problems come up. there There is this corollary from another idea that I do not claim to have made up, but from Paul Graham that he calls like the the great Schlep that I think kind of speaks to some of that as well, where if you're just if you recognize those opportunities and and you kind of can put in the the willpower and just attention to solving really what seem like unscalable problems, there is a lot of opportunity with those. And it's it's often too
0: not the uh, the people that were the industry experts that that do that you know kind of out of the box different methodology of scale uh, you know like uh, uh, you just use Elon Musk right like he wasn't necessarily a a NASA engineer or or into financial stuff before PayPal or into autonomous cars before Tesla you really I think at least in my opinion oftentimes it's people that come from uh, completely different industries that can think of the problem completely disparate and different. And they no longer think, okay, how do I make this car 5% better, 2% better, 12% better? They start to think of how would I build a car if I didn't know anything about cars? You know, like how, like how, how different would it be and could it be? And I don't know if you're a fan of Tesla's at all, but they're one of my favorite analogies for this because it's, it's like nothing like a car. I mean, it looks like a car, you know, and it, you know, gets you from A to B like a car, but it's about as similar to a
1: car as a car is to a horse and buggy. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it, it kind of embodies that, uh, beginner's mindset building up from the first principles of it rather than the yep. the way it's, it's been done to date and that iterative process instead. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where does your entrepreneurial interest come from? It started fairly young for me. I was maybe,
0: I always had a good work ethic. I mean, I, I think I had a job since I was you know, 13 years old uh, pumping gas, you know, washing dishes, cooking. I uh, wasn't a terribly great student wasn't a terribly great employee. And I uh, one of my friends who I actually moved in with my first roommate, I think I was 17 or 18, uh, he was into online marketing. And that was the first time I saw automation. He was like a, an email marketer, essentially. And he had these systems where like the, the mice and the keys were literally moving on their own. Um, <laughs> and it just blew me away. I was like, what is going on here? You know, and, and that's when I learned about automation and programming and VB back then, or VB six or whatever it was, uh, Visual Basics, and started teaching me how to build programs. And that's when I really started to get super interested in in not being an employee because this guy worked for himself forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, he had a Porsche nine eleven Carrera Turbo, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, as a senior in high school, he had an H one Hummer matching canary yellow, you know, the Hummer and the and the Porsche. And, you know, the big joke around town was he was like a drug dealer or whatever, but really he was just an online marketer. He was just like an online entrepreneur, just like many of the publishers and affiliates are today. And it just it just kind of blew me away. Like I I came from humble beginnings. You know, my parents never made a ton of money. I'd never made a ton of money. And you know, I think my first semester in college, I was doing night school, but I was clearing you know six figures a year. So it was just like, what am I doing? Like why, you know? And I'm barely focusing on this, you know. And back then it was a lot easier. There was not nearly as many people
1: into online marketing or podcast type stuff, right? Or anything like that. But that was that was when it started. Yeah. And just to, for my own curiosity and, and for, for folks listening, like what, when you're clearing six figures in, in college, what what is, what is online marketing? Like I have a sense for what that means, but like, what does that actually entail? Yeah. It's uh newsletters and emails. And I mean, now we would call it spam, right? Like you get a,
0: you get a, <laughs> a thing, you know, and it's whatever, uh, what would it be like uh, a dating website or, uh, you know, lose weight, you know, with acai berries or who who knows what, you know, what what crap we were sending out at the time. (laughs) But it was just, uh, it's affiliate marketing, right? So like every, every company has it. Google has it, right? MSN had it. You can send people links to try to get them to buy something. And if they buy something, you get paid a referral, right? So that's how affiliate marketing publishers work. There's very legitimate ways to do it all the way down to seriously illegitimate Um, we were definitely more of the legitimate side where you know we we do things compliant and you know send out to people that subscribe to newsletters things like that but yeah that's essentially what it was was solicitations over email Uh, generally automated you wouldn't be sending emails one by one by one by one by hand right you would be sending you know thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands per day to people that you know signed up to various different newsletters or websites that you created That got me into, you know, I built a lot of humor website, I guess would be the best way to say it. Like there was one, the the site's still up. I don't own own it anymore, but it's called CustomSouthParks.com. And it was a little site where you could create your own South Park character. So you can give them like curly blonde hair and headphones and a microphone and, you know, make your own little avatar. And that went super viral back in the MySpace days, uh, back before anything went viral. You know, there was no... There was no feed, there was no share buttons, but I built ways for people to share these things really easily uh, amongst each other. And that was another example of scaling something that otherwise wouldn't be scalable. Uh, there was no way to save images out of Flash games, but I, I innovated a way to do that. So it's just another example of how you can get people kind of into funnels to sign up for stuff. Because when they try to save the image, I would say, hey, please fill out the survey. And that would be them opting in to get offers from, you know, wireless phone carriers
1: or cheaper internet stuff like that. Right. So as you're, you're working through this, really just working for yourself in this context, right? Mm-hmm. At yep. what point do you start to think about solving things more at scale from the perspective of building a business and, and maybe some of, What were some of the original problems that that you were identifying and starting to to think about? Yeah, it it took a long time,
0: candidly. I mean, I had a lot, I had a lot, I had probably more fun in my 20s than any three people I know. Um, (laughs) You know, again, I was getting used to this kind of online solopreneur, laptop nomad. I mean, I lived in Belize for some years. I traveled all around. I lived in Vegas, I lived in Myrtle Beach, and I didn't I wasn't really tethered or tied to anything. I just kind of built these projects, like you know, now I call them money hacks. I realized back then I thought they were businesses, but they were really just arbitrage, you know, yeah. projects. And not, not not to not to say anything wrong with that. I mean, that's that's a great way to make a lifestyle living specifically, you know, you got all your overhead super low to, you know, high EBITDA business and whatnot. But I, I just wasn't thinking about growing a business or selling a company or raising money. It never even crossed my mind. I would just build something that made money and it would kind of run until it didn't make money anymore, until something broke, the arbitrage broke, you know, the the model broke. And then I'd figure something else out. And that, you know, that caused some really significant income years and it caused some dire deficit income years, you know, where I, I lost more money than I made. It wasn't honestly until I, uh, fell in love with my now wife and I kind of woke up one day and realized like, wow, I'm 31, 32 years old. I've made millions of dollars over my career. I have zero dollars to show for it. I have zero business to show for it. I have nothing that was, you know, truly valuable or solving big problems. And that's when I got kind of got serious about, okay, I got to, I got to try to build something that's, that's lastable that I can, that somebody else can run that will, will go on, you know, without necessarily, you know, happen to have it be a, um, an arbitrage type game, you know, where you buy something for 5 cents and sell it for 25 cents. Right. And right. Some of the, some of the early problems, um, built some networks. Uh, again, there's a ton of automation behind this, but we built me and my co-founder, uh, in our C- current CTO, we built some systems that would pair Amazon sellers with people that wanted free product and they would get the free product and then write a review, not necessarily good review, but they would, they would write, you know, Essentially, long keyword-rich reviews, which helps get your search engine ranking placements in Amazon higher up in the list. So it was all, you know, very, leg- very, leg- very legitimate. I want to make sure I say that right and <laughs> above board. And that worked well. Uh, we built another system where we paired Facebook advertisers with Facebook people, so that the advertisers could run ads on their accounts and kind of spread their ads around. A lot of these big like, kind of invite-only networks; those were decent. We were also building Drips at the same time and Drips was just kind of the project that, that really took off, you know, and realized like it was, you know, it could work across many verticals, solves really big problems. And that was right around the time where texting was like becoming way more ubiquitous and prevalent and less and less and less people want to pick up their phones, right? Whether that's due to the prevalence of robodial or the preference of asynchronous conversations because everybody's busy. But that was the business that we effectively started, you know, 100% focusing on in 2016.
1: When you were working through these, was there a higher level vision or thesis that you had kind of baked up coming into this? Or was it really a matter of experimentation with different projects, trying to find one that had this extensibility and and value and, and longevity to it? Yeah,
0: it's definitely the latter. I, I I have a kind of a mantra, a framework that I, as I look back in my career and all my successes and failures, it, like the, the first step for any entrepreneur that's bootstrapping should just be do more, right? Like more hours, more emails, more tests, more, if you're, if you're trying to, Make money designing websites. All you need is more clients, right? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's relatively simple. You just do a lot more. Then eventually, you refine. You know, you get a little success, and you you have to refine and become more efficient so you get to do better. And then, you know, long into your career, you get to what's right. You know, and you get to do do right. So w- with Drips specifically, like we're just getting into the do right phase. <laughs> like you know, it's uh, and we're working with some of the biggest. Companies in the world, you know, Fortune many many Fortune 100 companies. So no, I I, th- I think a lot of entrepreneurs they come in with their vision too baked in, you know, and 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 that that causes a a real uh, rigidity, you know, and, and it, it you know I'm, I'm a big person I like the lean startup methodology and just uh, MVPs and proof of concepts and whatnot. Um, my career has helped me with that, but that—that's still how we operate. Like we we prove stuff, test it, iterate, shift, adjust, pivot. You know, we don't. Uh, we definitely have a mission statement. And we have like you know what we're trying to do long term and and whatnot. But it's kind of like we know four years ago we knew we were driving west. You know, we didn't know if we were necessarily going right. to California. <laughs> Or Nevada, or where, and you know, or when we'd stop, or what we'd have to do to get there. But you know, you eventually refine and refine and refine until you know exactly, you know, where you're going. But I think anybody that starts with the exact end in mind is set up for a lot of letdown, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, just just building on that before we we dive into to drips itself. Just going back to the idea of the beginner's mindset and and kind of building from first principles. If if not a thesis that you kind of had originally going into it you know it sounds like there was this extensive experience you had in the space and and uh just like things that you had learned along the way did did that do you feel like give you these like earned secrets about the industry and a direction to to work towards or did did you like challenge yourself in in kind of the the things that you had learned along the way yeah both i think i l- leaned on the you know, the skill sets that I had, which was around a lot of
0: automation, a lot of scaling to max scale with minimum resources. I always say what can be automated should be automated. But yeah, I mean, I learned a ton. You know, I mean, I've read a lot of the books, right? I've, I've, I've you know, followed a lot of different people. I've, I've sought out mentors and CEO coaches and other CEOs and founders and learned from, you know, groups, it's just kind of all of the above. There, there's very few people that I'm aware of that, you know, Become very successful that did it all by themselves. I don't. I don't know if I know even one. Right. <laughs> um, even if you're like barely successful, you
1: you generally probably had a lot of help along the way, though,
0: whether you realize
1: it or not. Yeah. So let's talk about about drips for a moment. That um, probably for the duration of <laughs> the rest of the conversation here. Um, so you mentioned some some co-founders that that you have. What what did kind of the the impetus for for drips look like?
0: Yeah. It was it was one of those things where. Uh, uh, Guy that uh, my, my co-founder and I were working with in a, in a different business, he had a an online ad agency. So he would generate Facebook leads online for student loan consolidations back with the obama whatever whatever the student loan reform act or whatever it was so his his company would generate he would he would find people that need to get their student loan consolidated or forgiven and then he would get those people on the phone and then sell those calls into debt forgiveness counselors or whatever it may be so he had a system that was a crm that would send a text message every day at noon that would say hello, thanks for applying for, you know, whatever it was, student loan relief. Please call us back at 888-555-1212 to get your student loans, um, you know, reconfigured or whatever. That system broke one day. And he just told me, he's like, hey, man, can you, can you fix my system? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, my, my thing, <laughs> my texture broke. And and I said, "Well, I can't. I can't fix somebody else's software. That's not really, you know, how software works." <laughs> and it was. Uh, but anyway, long story short, I found out what it did exactly, and I rebuilt it. I rebuilt it essentially overnight, and I, I sent him. You know, it was like maybe 3 a.m. the next morning or the next night. And I send him a link. And I said, hey, when you're ready, open this link. And it was just a really long PHP script that would rerun itself every time you ran. It would grab like 10 records or 100 records or whatever. And it would send that same text message out. So he calls me at 3 a.m. He's like, hey, man, it's not working. And I said... What's not working? He said, the link. I just, I just clicked it. It just says refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. And I said, Oh dude, close that thing. You know, and I, and he closed <laughs> it and what he did, he already texted like, you know, 2000 people Oh wow! at 3am, you know, and his, his, he looked at his dashboard and his lines were all lit up with all these people on hold. And anyway, long story short, the next day he was up he used to, prior to that, convert about 10% of his leads into calls. And with my script, he was converting 15% of his leads to calls. So it was a 50% increase in, in performance, which was just huge. You know, it's a great uh, increase. And he asked me, he said, what'd you do different? And I said, well, your message was a little broadcasty, you know, it was like, wasn't very humanized. So I changed the message to, Hey, and then I put in the first name, Hey, Jeffrey. Thanks for, thanks for finding us on Facebook. So I put in some recency there, some authority, some social proof. Like I'd already read all the marketing psychology books, you know, as an email marketer. And so I, I put in all that contextually relevant information into the message and it said like, you can call me anytime until eight o'clock, here's my number. And it was very humanized, you know, and that got him a 50% increase in conversion. So long story short, he was like, great, what else can we do? So I start changing the messages, you know, so first day at noon, it would send a message, next morning at 10 a.m. it would send a good morning message. Then Three days later, in the evening, it would send "Hope I caught you after work" message. I'm about to leave my desk, but I got another hour. Uh, that got him up to like a 25% conversion. And then we added in calls, and that's about the time I actually brought in my my co-founder and said, "Hey, man, I need you to rebuild this because it's kind of a leaning tower of crap, right? <laughs> like, I'm I'm not a good, I'm not a great programmer by any means. So I, that's why I partnered with with Anthony. I was always the visionary, and he was always the integrator. Uh, so he rebuilt the whole system. Realized very quickly that a lot of these people, the, the majority actually, were texting us back, right? And that's when we kind of fell into this conversational AI idea We because we, we're looking at what people are saying and they're saying like, well, call me now, or I can't talk, or I'm at work, or how much does it cost? Or they're saying, don't call me. And then we'd call them or they'd say, call me back now. We wouldn't call them for another day. So it's really bad user experience. Um, so we built a chat room. We just staffed a couple people, again, thinking lean, right? We didn't start with a hardcore AI, natural language processing, machine learning, you know, robot, we just started with two right. people that were, you know, copying, pasting common responses from a spreadsheet. And then eventually we started training the system, you know, if they said I'm busy, they could click the I'm busy button. Then we started training it to say like anytime they click anything that meant I'm busy, it would start building a dictionary. So now we've had, I think since then we've had, I don't even know what it is, is—sixty two million, something like that, human trainings to our dictionary. So wow. effectively we know all the which ways to say I'm driving, all the which ways to say I'm at work, all the ways to say no or stop, including, you know, the middle finger emoji, right? Like, you know, and, <laughs> and that's where that's the level of autonomy you got to get to to be able to hold a completely humanized conversation. We're in a great place when it comes to competitors because we're the only ones that have been doing it at this big of a scale for this long. So we just have all that data, you know, again, I, you know, back to the Tesla thing, they have more cars driving on the roads. Right. So somebody has to come up with a system that is so much better than theirs that the data isn't worth it. But, it, you know, it's, it's terribly hard to do. A lot of startups, I think, you know, they raise money and they hire data scientists and machine learning experts and they don't have any data. You know, we started by executing and. Even just now, we're just now starting to scratch the surface on moving from a deterministic model to a probabilistic model and doing much more with data science and machine learning and whatnot. But we only can do that because we've had 550 million conversations at this
1: point. Right, right. This concept of conversational texting, how has that idea just kind of evolved over, over the years? And, and you, you talked about competition. Like, What is this brand, consumer, relationship, management, lead generation, and conversion, just market kind of look like today? And and where does conversational texting kind of fit in?
0: I think conversational texting is uh, really applicable for high consideration items or for enterprises that have audiences that are otherwise stuck. Meaning like, you know, somebody that is going to get kicked off of Medicaid because they didn't pay their bill or somebody that needs to return their at home test, you know, to get accurate readings or somebody needs to renew their auto insurance policy or they're going to lapse. These are things that happen all the time, right? Like people just don't pick up the phone when these enterprises are calling them or they're not carefully combing through their direct mail anymore. They're sure as heck not seeing every email, right? It's, you know, everybody's inundated with email. So that's where I think it's really applicable. It's not so much applicable for, you know, uh, Stern forgot to buy the socks that he left in his shopping cart, right? Like that's more direct response. That's more like just send a push text maybe and just say, hey, were you still interested? We'll give you 20% off. You know, you don't need to like hold a humanized conversation, to answer buyer questions and bring somebody down a, a buyer's journey for some socks, but you probably do for, you know, a mortgage loan or, you know, healthcare or uh, renewing your auto insurance or
1: whatnot. So it's it's more the considered the considered purchases, I think. Yeah and is, that's something that you have learned over time or was there experimentation with these different kinds of conversations? Hey, we we just kind of we kind of fell into it. We um I mean yeah, there was a time
0: where we would try anything, you know, we were doing stuff for politicians, shopping cart reengagements, app downloads, I mean all kinds of stuff. And yeah, you learn, you start to realize like through pattern recognition, okay, we've had whatever it is a couple hundred clients and we got 60 that are great, you know, like what, what, what makes these the same? You know, you start to break them apart and look at a ideal client profile and figure out what it is about them that, that makes them the same or what, or about the projects that make it worthwhile. Like we've done, you know, welcome messages and happy anniversary messages, but they don't move the needle enough. It's not a big enough problem to solve. It's not a, it's not a terribly difficult thing to automate. So those projects always kind of failed, you know, but these, more high consideration, high value, pivotal moments for consumers with servicing companies seem to be like really where we have our sweet spot. And there's other companies that focus on e-com. Attentive is a great one, very large, uh, very great at what they do in shopping cart reengagement. But it's just it's a different thing. You know, it's like that's really more direct response. They don't need to have, you know, completely humanized conversation. They just need to be able to stay in front of consumers and keep brand awareness where it should be.
1: Yeah. So, so what does what does Drips look like today? What What is the extent of kind of the product offerings? How you know how many folks are are you working with, and, and just kind of the the scale? Oh yeah, you know, at which uh, you're operating. Today. So we have uh, I,
0: don't,
1: I don't even know how many clients we have now. A lot, but not not like <laughs> thousands.
0: Um, it's a it's a managed technology, so it's bigger companies. So it's you know seven or eight dozen of, you know, some of the largest either enterprises in the world or the agencies that service those enterprises. We have 125 employees currently, you know, up from four uh, in 2016. Um, (laughs) The system just for ideal for scale, I think right now it's holding around eight 0.5 million concurrent conversations, Yeah, right about now, still six o'clock, it's probably doing 180 or so touch points per second. So every single second, there's 180 messages going in or coming out. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It's a a fun, it's an interesting problem to solve because like, there's a reason why you know, your local insurance agent can get a hold of you, it's because it's a person, you know, and they can act like a person. They can call and they can leave a voicemail they can send you a text, they can follow up with an email, and they can do what they need to do to get a hold of you. And you can then tell them, hey, I'm busy, AC, try me at six, and then they'll try you at six. The problem and the opportunity, and this goes back to scale scaling the unscalable, is like how does an enterprise staff a hundred thousand of those people? You know, a hundred thousand right. mortgage loan officers, a hundred thousand insurance agents. It's it's impossible. It doesn't, the math doesn't back out that's why we have a successful business is we can give the enterprise that one-to-one scalability and performance so that to the consumer it looks human and feels human without the cost of staffing a full-time employee
1: at what point in the in the journey from from when you started to, to where you are today do you transition away from that kind of mechanical Turk model and and then like where where someone you know behind the scenes is kind of acting as an AI, acting as a human. <laughs> it's just when
0: you have the right competence scores. Like you can't, if if you get to a point where a consumer can tell it's a bot, you've lost, right? So like that that's to me is the other competition is chatbots technically, you know, you could, you could argue that drips is a chat bot, but if you can't tell it's a bot to me, it's something else. Right. To me, it's
1: this, um, you know, this is you this, passed the Turing test.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, you know, who knows, but the, the, the point is like, if, if I text something, it says respond M for more information and I for, or P for price or R to reschedule. I know that's a bot. Right. But if it's like, Hey, Jeffrey, did you have any more questions? Yeah, well, I'm curious how much it call. Oh, great question. Yeah, it actually costs this much. You know, could we touch base later on tonight? No, I'm busy. I'm at work. Oh, sorry, I caught you at work, man. Um, you know, how's tomorrow look? I'm, I'm, I'm in the office till six. Like, if you look like that, it's not, to me, it's not chatbot. And I don't think consumers want to chat with chatbots. I think it's a pretty poor user experience. So again, it kind of goes back to the data, right? Like I have to have seen the message I'm stuck in a meeting at the office at least a couple times or, or, you know, human program that program that in to build that dictionary to be able to handle that response with a 99 to hundred percent confidence score. You can use fuzzy logic, but then it gets bad. You know, you start to, you know, you start to lower your thresholds and, and, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I, I'm at work and uh, not interested. And they see I'm at work is the, the heavier weighted thing. And they say, oh, sorry, we caught you at work. We'd love to tell you about, you know, yada, yada, yada. So how you do it is by doing it. And that's kind of my point about getting the reps, right? Like Teslas didn't drive themselves at first, right? People drove them. And then, and then they started, you know, whatever, adaptive cruise control. Then they started seeing stop signs and it started stopping at stop signs. But you can't skip steps, right? You have to have the data in order to be able to leverage the data.
1: Yeah. When you think about the next steps, and maybe just to go on like a macro level detour here for a sec, but like when you think about AI and and where like the rubber hits the road on that, how are you thinking about AI in term, like internally at drips and then also more at an industry level? You know, there are things that have come out recently. There's the whole GPT three model and and really some like linguistic mm-hmm. capabilities for these AI things that, that really feel human yeah. on the other side. Yeah. No, there's, there's a ton of cool stuff coming out. Like I think a, a, at the end of the day, whoever can have a real,
0: true, probabilistic model when it comes to these types of conversations is is in the best seat. And again, we're we're lucky to have been doing this for years and had hundreds of hundreds of millions of conversations because. We should, you know, by doing the right look backs and tagging our stuff appropriately, we should know how to hold a conversation with Jeffrey slightly different than AC. Right. Even if it's the same, you know, same area, but I'm a little older or whatever, you know, so like I, you know, the, 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 the lingo that I might like is a little different than yours or I might like emojis and you might not. You know, so a lot of it is about moving from a, a deterministic model, meaning, OK, all the people in this bucket get this conversation and all the people in this book get that conversation. It's more like, think like optimizely, right? Where you go to the landing page and just because of what it knows about you or people that look like you, it changes the whole site in a probabilistic manner versus a deterministic one. So that I think is what's next for us. You know, what's next for AI? Who knows? It's uh, I feel like, I feel like that's (laughs) like the, the most overused, you know, buzz term ever. Yes. But you know, it it doesn't, doesn't mean it's not going to, eventually the uh, you know eventually cars will fly right uh you know i you know i just I, I, there was a really really good talk tim urban did about ai and it was it was spot on he's like you know everybody thinks it's not going to happen until it happens right like nobody thought ai would be able to beat a person in chess you know but it it did and when it did it was never beatable again, right? And then it was like, what was next? It was like uh poker, right? Texas Hold'em. They were like, well, an AI could never win in Texas Hold'em because there's human emotions, there's bluffing, there's this, there's that. Yeah, and yeah. It, it did take it a while, but it, when it did, it was not able to be to be caught, you know. But but the the skills that AI has are, are generally, you know, almost always right. They're 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 narrow, right? It's not like the poker playing AI is not going to win in chess, you know, and the chess AI is not going to figure out how to drive your car. So, you know, what what a lot of people think about from the most macro level, the, uh, you know, God on earth AI or whatever is a general intelligence that I, you know, I haven't seen anything uh, that says it's coming anytime soon, but when it does, it'll be interesting. You know, that's why I'm nice to my <laughs> Alexa and Siri. And, you know, that way they remember me when they start to take over.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that uh, that resonates. Uh, that I'm sure they're listening in right now. That's right. We love you. We love you, <laughs> Alexa. Well, one thing that I, I am curious about because I, I think we've we've covered a, a good deal, like how you've thought about scaling technically the organization, just kind of the natural progression that, that you've gone through to, to get where you are today. But from the the business perspective, I know that, that Drips is now one of the, the fastest growing companies in in North America. And, you know, tell me (laughs) where, where I'm wrong here, but I'm not sure, like from the beginning that, you know, you necessarily were, did you know that you would be getting as big as you are getting? And like, how do you think about just scaling the company and the organization and the culture that, that comes with what you've done on the, on the technical side?
0: Yeah. um, Carefully, I would say, like, I think we're you know, I think we've done a good job of defining a kind of a niche category, a new category, maybe it's not as niche as, you know, I used to think. Um, But this idea of, you know, automated humanized conversations at scale, it's a big, it's a big solution that a lot of people can use. And the one thing that let me back up, and we, we have such a lead on the market that it's ours to mess up, right? But so so what's important to me is keeping that lead right the remaining remaining first and becoming the whatever the marketo of conversational ai or the you know the uber of conversational ai or whatever but when you think about it like Uber wasn't first, right? There was Magic Taxi before Uber. There was Lotus Notes before Salesforce. There was BlackBerry before iPhone. So oftentimes it's not the market leader or the market innovator that wins um, because all the competitors get get to catch up very quickly. They can look at what Drips is doing and they can they can emulate very quickly without having to go through the, you know, the years of suffering and pain that we did to to get to (laughs) where we're at. But that's why we took on a a funding partner with Excel KKR, you know? So I think we did it at the the right time. I think we're at the right size. They are specifically a B2B SaaS uh, technology investor. So they've done, I don't know, two or 300 different deals like this where their pattern recognition will help us speed up even further, right? Like, you know, they're not investing in, B2C companies are not investing in manufacturing companies. They, they invest in technology companies. So that's how we speed up. And, you know, for, for me, it's really ours to mess up at this point. I, I think the, the thing that I'm very cognizant and uh, careful about in my whole team is, is taking the prudent steps and not trying to go too fast. Right. And that, that's the trick. It's all timing, right? It's like, if we would invest it into healthcare two years ago, it would have been a waste of money. It wouldn't have been ready. But if we would invest it in auto insurance next year, we'd have been too late, you know? So it's, uh, it's all timing, you know, and just trying to adjust the throttle and be very thoughtful with being very iterative. I mean, we still, my whole C-suite, we still meet every couple of weeks and talk through every single new hire, every single one, you know, and, 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 adjust and stack rank and, you know, move things around as, as, as market changes. I think a lot of people get too hung on to best laid plans and then they, and then, you know, they, they look up and they're, they're off, you know, or they're above their skis or they didn't invest quick enough or whatever it may be. So I think just being thoughtful,
1: you know? Yeah. What are, what are some of the other things that, that worry you or concern you? (laughs) I used to be concerned about call center softwares. Honestly,
0: there's a lot of, you know, very, very well funded, multi-billion dollar companies, you know, Genesis of IA, Five Nine, ICE, and Contact. They should be the ones that are innovating where we are. But I, I just haven't seen it. Or or, you know, it's a little it's a little odd because they or or it makes sense because they they're on like generally a per seat model where they they charge and make more money the bigger the call center, where we're more into like efficacies and shrinking down call centers and acting as a, a hybrid to them, you know? So they, 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 used to keep me up. I mean, there's a ton and, you know, it laws could change, right. Regulatory environments could change. Phones could change, you know, phones could start to act more like email, which is, uh, which won't be surprising. You know I mean? I'm sure you've seen the report junk button and, uh, oh, yes. e- <laughs> even if it's, you know, even if you just apply for Liberty Mutual, and you got to text, if if enough people click report junk, it's going to start getting treated like junk. They got to crowdsource it. So I think well past a lot of that stuff, because again, I come from a marketing background. So I'm always worried about creating the best conversation we can for the consumers in a very, very contextual way. And that will always win. If you blast people right now and you send a bunch of spam or, you know, robocalls or, uh, push messaging out, you're gonna have a terribly difficult time getting to the audience you're trying to connect with. But if you have real people who the clients have the right consents and they're reaching out for the right reasons at the right time with the right message and they're able to actually hold a humanized conversation, that's great. Like that's 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 where you want to be, you know. So I don't know. Um what scares me? Hiring the wrong people, you know, I mean I think that's always in a in a fast growth thing, especially leadership, you know, you get the wrong the wrong person in the wrong seat. And, you know, they, they, they come in and they disrupt the culture or, you know, at best case, they slow you down a lot because you didn't put the right person in the right seat. Culture at scale is tough, you know, it's different. You know, we used to have a nice small headquarters with a private chef and arcade games and, you know, really just super cool place, especially for Akron. And now we're 130 people across the United States, you know, and, it's different, yeah. you know? So, so figuring out <laughs> how to scale remote culture is, is tough. You know, the coronavirus, like that sucks, right? Like we're <laughs> yeah. we're B2B, big contract software sales. Usually our teams are belly to belly, right? Like, that's what I jokingly call B2B, belly to belly. Um, like, you know, they're in the room, you know, working with their, their executive sponsors and like that's just not a reality mm-hmm. now. So I think that slowed us down a lot uh, as far as getting market adoption. You know, but that that you know that's the same stuff that everybody's dealing with. So I wouldn't say it
1: scares me as much as those are the, those are the challenges the challenges. How have you thought about the the scaling of the culture? you know going from four people to hundreds? you know that's that is quite a transformation. yeah, I mean
0: l- luckily we we have some great people. um Katie, who has been uh, with us, I think she was like her sixth or seventh employee from the beginning. And she's really owned culture. And I I still work with her a lot on it. But a lot of stuff, I mean, the way we hire, the way we fire, the way we do performance reviews, you know, like the core values are 50%, I think, of somebody's performance review, which is, you know, what dictates if they get more money or not. We have, I think, at the most macro level, I've realized that you can't just get people in the same room and rile them up. You know, I mean, we used to have microphones and PA systems and all kinds of super cool stuff <laughs> that just doesn't exist now. So I realize that since you can't do it with these like larger groups, you got to do it and you got to build the same fabric, but in a one-to-one relationship, right? So we have mentorship programs, buddy programs, core value winners, uh, crowdsourced, you know, scoring of people and, and and calling out good work and interest groups. And I mean, we have like an interest group for every We have like a Taylor Swift interest group, right, on Teams or Slack or whatever. So, like, all the people that love Taylor Swift can talk about Taylor Swift. We have clubs, right, fitness clubs, wine clubs, sports clubs, and they all have real budgets, you know. So, like, the wine group gets together once a month and virtually, and, you know, we have a virtual Sommelier and they, you know, do wine tasting. We have a book club that sends out books. So, I think you have to give people the tools and the avenues to connect one to one. And, and kind of make room for those same conversations that would have otherwise happened over lunch or at the water cooler, right? But without, you know, without creating those spaces for that and and budgeting the time and the money for it, it, it won't happen. You know, you end up with a very meritocracy, you know, culture, which, you know, some, some companies that's great for But I think when you're trying to build, you gotta, you know, people really gotta want to lean in and get in the same boat together.
1: Yeah. When you think about, Owning the the conversational texting market, what is like the the impact with that that you kind of hope to accomplish with, with drips?
0: Unpack that question a little bit. What can, what kind of impact? <laughs>
1: I, mean, I can imagine a few. Like, uh, financial. A, uh... yeah, like what what are you know like when you're looking back twenty years from now and and reading the. Or whatever it is, and you're reading about drips and the story of drips and, and kind of the, the impact that it's had on the industry and the space. Like what, what do you hope, what do you hope that is? I, look, I, I hope we
0: were the people that brought conversational AI really to life, you know, and it's just, it's a cool thing to imagine that an insurance agent could hold conversations, you know, through a system like drips with, thousands of their clients versus doing it by hand, you know? So like, to me, it's about, you know, being first, remaining first and, and, and being the the market dominator in that, in, in our specific space, you know, like I said, there's other companies that do a great job with direct response stuff, but I think for ours, it's, it's allowing all consumers to engage with brands on a one-to-one basis, right? Personalized one-to-one on the consumer's time. It's not intrusive. It's polite. And I think it just makes for a better e- economy, better user experience. You know, I don't have to worry about radio ads stopping me from doing what I want or interstitials or direct mail or email or, or call centers or billboards or all these other kind of push methodologies. The the brand can reach out to me and ask me when it's a good time. And I'll either say yeah, next Thursday at two or I'll say never, you know, and like that's, that's a much better <laughs> user experience for me. And it's a much it's a it's a big cost saver for the for the brand. So. I think for me, mostly, it's just like be, being that sales force of it. Like, you know, I've I've had twenty five or thirty five different projects and businesses, and a handful of them had had real potential to scale. I, I see that now as I as I look back on my career. But most entrepreneurs, specifically bootstrap ones, don't get the chance to build something that we've been able to build that can really be. a I mean, it easily could be a multi billion dollar company. It's got all the makings for it.
1: That's very exciting. <laughs> I, I'm curious before we we kind of work towards the, the closing questions here, w- what have been some of the most like niche or innovative applications of conversational texting? Oh man, there's, there's, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: we're doing something now. I don't think I'm even allowed to say the company name or the product name, but it's uh at home poop tests. That's a, uh, that's a big <laughs> one that I'm pretty excited about. I'm excited for the emoji use on that campaign. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's probably my favorite one. Uh, hel- helping nurses, uh, helping nurses get patient people signed up for patient care coordination. You know, like somebody that's pre diabetic, like getting them on a health plan so that they don't end up in the hospital. Again, it's like it's it's a great thing for the consumer, great thing for the hospitals, great thing for the payers. We've tried for a couple COVID things with with some of the big pharmacies and c- didn't get to win that business. That would have been that would have been nice. Yeah, I think a lot of like the healthcare stuff and like the patient care coordination stuff. I think is for me, it's it's super impactful, you know. And and for us as a business, everybody gets sick, right? Like, so the whole country <laughs> is 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 a target audience at that point, right? If we can get into the the payers and the insurers and the the healthcare plans and
1: whatnot, I, I imagine there is a breath. That is that's that's a lot, though. <laughs> cool. Well, we'll work towards our our closing question here, which is is uniform for for everyone that's come on and. We're essentially building a collage of not necessarily people's favorite things in the in the Northeast Ohio area, but of the hidden gems or, or things that other people may not necessarily know about that you value. Oh, that's a good one. It's funny. I get you know, like I, I like Cleveland
0: as much as the next guy, but I'm 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 such an Akron person. Like I, there was a point before the pandemic where I swear I got to New York more often than I got to Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Akron people are just weird, you know, but not, not that, I mean, I think most Midwesterners are to some degree, but Cleveland, uh, love the Velvet Tango Room. They're under new ownership now, but it's, I, I haven't seen it drop off at all. It's a really, really super, super yummy crafted cocktail type joint in Tremont. And also in Tremont actually is, uh, Ginkgo, which is like I think probably the best, some of the best sushi I've ever had in my life, and I've eaten sushi all over the world, and it's it's right there, you know, in Tremont. It's a little bitty, you know, maybe twelve top something like that. Super, super, super small, small sushi bar, but they're they're killer
1: if you uh, if you're a sushi person. Yeah, they're f- fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, AC, I really very much appreciate you coming on and uh, and sharing your story here. It, it was very cool to to learn about drips uh and i mean really just the extraordinary growth and progress that, that y'all are making in the market it's it's awesome right well i uh, appreciate your
0: time jeffrey or stern i don't know what you would like to go by but uh appreciate it either way. <laughs> Sterns
1: was my last name
0: got it okay cool uh yeah man well i'll see you around cleveland
1: yeah absolutely if uh if folks have anything that they would like to uh follow up with you about or you know whatever it may be where, where's the best place for them to, to reach you
0: My email is AC, as in Aaron Christopher, at drips.com. Drips.com is a great place to learn more about us and what we do and who we do it for. We put out a ton of content and thought leadership on the subject. But yeah,
1: email is always easy. Excellent. Well, AC, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe. J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC.